You're listening to Go with Jamarlin Martin. We have a go hard or go home approach as we talk to the leading tech leaders, politicians, and influencers. Let's go. Today, we have the great Howard Franklin on the show from Thompson Victory Group. How's it going? Very well. I appreciate you guys having me. Let's dive right into your your story. Of course, uh, we connected and you have represented big billion dollar clients such as Amazon and Google. Walk the audience through your career trajectory to becoming what they would call a lobbyist. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question and a difficult one to, yeah. to give you a picture of. I would tell you the vast majority of people who are political professionals of any stripe come to the profession so many different ways. I think the one common denominator, and it's certainly where I started, uh, was volunteering. I volunteered for a nonprofit organization that um, <clears throat> former Mayor Maynard Jackson actually founded, and really just from reading about it in a newspaper, Adult Weekly in Atlanta. Uh, and from there, spent time working for another great mayor, Mayor Shirley Franklin, on uh, the city of Atlanta for uh, almost three years. And between kind of those kind of inauspicious beginnings and where I sit in front of you today, I've done virtually everything in politics. I've been a staffer in large urban government. I've been a contract lobbyist. You mentioned Thompson Victory Group, and that's where I've uh, parlayed those skills. I have been a campaign guy, a campaign manager, and a campaign consultant all across the southeastern United States, uh, Georgia, where I live, but Mississippi, the Carolinas, even in the Cayman Islands and other parts of the Caribbean. Um, and I've also been a nonprofit executive director. So the skill set and the relationship network really kind of play well off one another. Um, and it, But it's never like a linear path. I, I might be able to point to a few people who said, hey, I got out of college with a poli-sci degree. I went to law school. I was a staffer. Then I was in politics. But the vast majority of us, I would say, find kind of circuitous, circuitous routes to whether it's campaign work, whether it's advocacy, whether it's staff work, um, the, the, the entire gamut. It's really just you find yourself in it. Uh, what type of family background did you come from and where? Yeah, so I'm originally from Detroit. Uh, I've really only lived two places in my life outside of the Cayman Islands. And my entire childhood in Detroit where my parents were both um, – both retired from General Motors after a lifetime of working in the factories, both blue-collar folks. But funny enough, kind of part of this great re-migration. Um, my parents are both Southerners who moved to Detroit for opportunity. And then as soon as I got an opportunity, I went to Morehouse College and moved back to the South and stayed in Atlanta. When I, when I was uh, at Morehouse, I had this term that I used, like, oh, that's a Cosby kid. <laughs> uh, were you a Cosby kid in terms of your upbringing? <clears throat> you know, I got in my, in my fair share of trouble, so I don't know that I would qualify as a Cosby kid. qualify. Your house was far from... Yeah, I, my, my mom still lives in the house I grew up in. You know, I remember a story I used to tell a couple years after finishing my freshman year. Um, in 1997, the FBI produced a crime index, and you could actually see how dangerous a neighborhood was uh, by inputting a zip code. And this is when we first got computers and yeah. access to the web, broadband, all that at Morehouse. And I remember putting in 30314, which was 830 Westview Drive. That's where Morehouse College and the entire AUC is located. And I think the crime stat level was like a seven or an eight. And then I put in my home zip code, 48238, Northwest Detroit, Michigan, and it was a nine. So, it, you know, to put it yeah. in context, 
I, I, I don't know if I, I qualify as a Cosby kid, but I was a, I was a good student. I had a 4.0 yeah. until I got admitted into Morehouse. So I was obviously very studious and knew that education was a way out of the city. Okay, so you graduate from Morehouse. Uh, what was your uh, degree? I double majored, actually. I uh, started with English. I got a journalism degree or journalism scholarship. But when I, as you probably know, dear old Morehouse, um, journalism was what they got to lure me there. But when I got to the actual school, I guess the demand for the program had waned to the point where only English literature was available. So I did English lit and then I picked up sociology and I finished both degrees in uh, those four years. And then where do you go after you graduate? I did a bunch of stuff. I actually worked in the dot-com arena for about three years. I worked for two venture-funded and one bootstrapped um, dot-com companies that did really interesting stuff. One of them still kicking. Still talk to my former boss uh, today, um, and then the other two have you know gone the way of the dinosaur. So I I did all kinds of stuff. I did research and analysis. I did marketing. You, you know, one of the difficulty. I love Morehouse College, um, but in the <clears throat> particularly if you don't have a, a business degree from Morehouse College, it's you know the the path for career placement isn't one that's well defined. I know that's something they're working on today. Yeah. And it was definitely true when I graduated in 2001. I just kind of, you know, kicked around, found stuff I could do. I, I got my first job right before 9-11. So if, if I hadn't gotten that job, I probably would have moved back to Detroit and we wouldn't be having this conversation today. Yeah. Okay, got it. So how do you get into politics? That's a great question. Uh, you know, <laughs> very slowly. I, as I mentioned earlier, I volunteer for a nonprofit. So at the time, I was working for a really prominent and, and still very successful PR company, uh, which was more along the lines of what I wanted to do, right? I'd gotten an English degree. I'd spent all four years writing for the Maroon Tiger, saw myself as, you know, potentially a journalist. I did a bunch of assignments as a stringer for black publications and independent publications around Metro Atlanta and the state of Georgia. Um, and then I got a PR gig. So I thought that was exciting, right? And, and that gig allowed me to travel and put on, uh, you know, conferences and editorial tours in DC and New York and travel to see clients, you know, all over the country. So really exciting stuff. But what I realized in the commission of this work, probably a year, a year and a half into it, was that I didn't feel like I was kind of meeting the potential that had driven me to go to Morehouse and to study sociology and, to, you know, feel like I was really making an impact in the, on, on the world. So I set out for a volunteer opportunity. I read about this pioneering nonprofit that Maynard Jackson uh, had founded, and uh, I went to a meeting that the article happened to mention. And, and in this meeting, a couple of the board members who obviously knew Maynard personally took an interest in me and set up. Um, in fact, one in particular, Bunny Jackson Ransom, his, his first wife, arranged for us to meet. So basically got me on his calendar. I you know, really didn't have an appreciation, a full appreciation for who he was or what he had done for the city. You know, I had some sense, but not probably as much as I should have. Uh, show up at the Equitable Building, 22nd floor, spend an hour talking to him about you know, young people and Morehouse. And as a little bit of context, the nonprofit was focused on youth voter outreach. So it was really about getting young people. It's kind of a precursor to kind of Voter Die or, you know, some of the other organizations that have kind of, that have cropped up in, a, in more recent years. So showed up, met him, talked about everything under the sun. We both enjoyed it. He said on the way out, you know, tell my assistant Pat Jackson to put you back on the calendar for two weeks. We did that for about two and a half, three months. So probably met six, eight times. And toward the end of it, he called me in my office and said one day, I want you to consider running this nonprofit that I founded. And I went to my boss and said, hey, you know, you know, Atlanta's former mayor just asked me to to take on this yeah, adventure with him. Yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sorry, but I got to leave. And, and I did. 
Okay. Okay. Nice. And then, so how do you jump to, Hey, I'm going to found my own lobbying firm. That's I, right. I know that there's not a lot of people who look like us that's enough, in yeah. that game. Yeah. So right. how do you, how do you get there? Huh, so <laughs> again, I think most of it was really doing a bunch of different things where I knew I had the confidence, I had the relationships, I had the skill sets to actually go out and stand on my own. In hearing your story, it's like, you know, you graduate from college and a lot of people are figuring things out. So, Absolutely. so you get exposure to the kind of the tech bubble.com, you're doing marketing, you're doing public relations, and it could to the outsider you could see man, you know, this guy is all over the place. However, when the right opportunity comes, you're the only person who could connect a lot of these different skill sets, which makes you, of course, a more effective professional or more unique professional. And I think uh, your story, I could relate to that. Well, yeah. I appreciate you saying so. Um, and I think you're right in a lot of ways. You know, I credit having worked in client service with being able to build a business, right? I think I learned so much from the client service arena before I even got into a place where I was fully ensconced in politics and policy, right? But I mean, as I was saying before, I think a big part of the confidence and really the foundation to be successful as an entrepreneur comes from being able to do and having done a bunch of different things. So I'd been a policy staffer for the state's largest county. I'd been a campaign manager uh, for, you know, a, a gubernatorial candidate. I'd, I'd been uh, communicating, I was the communications, the deputy communications director for Stacey Abrams when she first became the minority leader. So, you know, watching other ambitious people who were breaking barriers, who were doing impressive things gave me one confidence because I was in their, their sphere of influence. But two, when it was time to say, let me find my own thing, I, I knew I had people I could call upon. I knew I had experiences that clients would pay for. And I knew I had reach that probably you know, was uncommon in kind of my neck of the woods. What year do you start Thompson Victory? So I, I should I should clarify. So I spent the last five years as basically as of counsel to Thompson Victory Group. And it is actually Republican-led uh, consultancy that does mostly regulatory affairs work for some of the companies that I mentioned. The company that I founded is called Ohio River South, and I probably should have made that clear sooner. Um, but Ohio River South is really a narrative-driven organization, the focal point being the southeastern United States. In my mind, the southeast in particular is almost like the new New England. Right. Like when you think about how this country was founded, where all of the intellectual capital, all the industry were all invested in one part of the country to start. Right. And, and that part of the country is continued to do well and, and to live off of that that original and initial investment. But what we're seeing today is that the southeast in particular with this great remigration, with all the confluence of companies, culture, innovation, colleges, et cetera. The southeastern United States in particular, fastest growing region in the country, one of the youngest regions in the country, and also one of the most diverse, is really where it's at. And so I named the company Ohio River South because the Ohio River was actually the, the original line of demarcation between north and south 
prior to the Mason-Dixon line. And so our focal point has been the Ohio River and South. And so we, in the, our first three years of existence, we're just three years old now, we've worked for better than 40 organizations across seven southeastern states and then also included the District of Columbia and, and California. So we've really been focused on bringing scale, capacity, and professionalism to a region that doesn't have them like you might see in a Chicago or a D.C. or an L.A. or New England, for instance. In one sentence, the way you think about it, Define lobbyist in one sentence. <laughs> That's a good question. Okay. Um, I'll give you I, I have two ways to answer this question. When I get into an Uber and I, I'm, I'm in a suit and people ask, hey, where are you going or what do you do? And I, you know, I, I, I tell them I'm a lobbyist. As you might imagine, that always sparks a conversation. I haven't had one in my car before. Want to hear more about what you, what you do, et cetera. Speaking of uh, Uber, I read an article today where the guy picked up a passenger, dropped the family off at the airport, went back and robbed the house. So I guess that's the new Uber hustle. That's crazy. But go ahead. Let's <laughs> <laughs> take him on the side. Yeah. Yeah. Or a lift for that matter. Yeah. But um, my stock and trade answer is that I get paid to stop, start, or stall legislation. That's the shortest answer and probably the most direct answer I can give you. Okay, so that's an honest answer. I feel like that's that's an honest answer. And it sounds like you're oriented for the swamp in terms of the, <laughs> in, in terms of how the political game works in terms of powerful interest groups, big wallets, like an Amazon or Google, that they may want legislation stopped paused stopped uh, modified or whatever sure. and you're banging for these companies to so i'll say two things to that one my very first client at the state legislature before i even knew what a lobbyist was um at the time i think the organization was 22 years old they took a chance on a kid like me i think i got paid 500 bucks a month this is 2002 2003 a couple years out of college i worked for an organization called men stopping violence they are a lauded organization, a nonprofit that basically takes male offenders um, from domestic disputes, puts them in a half year program and basically rehabilitates them as men who can go out in the society and could raise families and be trusted to do so. And when our state legislature, which had for more than 100 years had been controlled by Democrats, flipped to Republican, this organization, which had never taken on advocacy before, uh, joined arms with other organizations that said, we want to make sure that this shift in political leadership does not erode protections for women and children. And so they hired me to basically organize um, a dozen years of graduates from this program who were former batterers, some who had been referred by the court systems, others who had, been, uh, who had decided on their own that they wanted to get help, to basically go down to the Capitol, learn how it works, and then to advocate for protections for women and children in the voices and from the perspective of the men who make the decisions at the state Capitol. Like, that's that's my orient. That, that's the first time I ever came to the Capitol, so lower the bathroom. So that sounds like good lobbying, but can you describe for the audience sure. how you think about good lobbying and bad lobbying? What would be an example of bad lobbying? The number one qualifier of bad lobbying, if, if, if we're putting it in those terms, is operating outside of good faith. And as you might, you probably know, I think based on even your career, the vast majority of successful people in this space 
are able to operate successfully because they can be trusted when they talk to lawmakers, when they talk to other advocates, when they talk to people who are stakeholders in the process. And so I think, you know, if we were qualifying bad lobbying, I, th I think it starts with, with operators who are willing to bend the truth or stretch the truth in the service of making something happen. Well, what about, hey, it's in the interest of the public let's just quantify it to have a privacy system that's rated let's say eight it's really pro public we want to protect your data and privacy but google and facebook are like hey if it goes to an eight i could lose 10 billion dollars sure. 10 billion dollars if the public gets what it's want it gets what it needs and, and wants uh so i need to hire someone like you to go out there and politic and try to reduce that eight simplistically kind of explain I totally it, get what you're saying. To, to like a five where I, I can still make my, 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 my quarterly earnings numbers are, you know, we can make uh, X amount of profit. So I need to water down that legislation. So I would say again, two things. One, I've spent the majority of my career at the state and local level. And I think, Although the attention gets paid to the presidential race or to what Congress is up to, the vast majority of legislation that impacts people's everyday lives is made at the state house, is made at city halls, made at county commissions and school boards. Uh, and sometimes even what Congress does or doesn't do, because it, as you know, the last several years, our Congress has been confined by partisan gridlock, right? So very little that would have any, that requires bipartisanship is actually getting done at the at the federal level these days, right? What is happening, because many of our state houses are controlled lock, stock, and barrel by one party, that's where so much legislation is actually taking place. So I'll give you a good example. Just two weeks ago, the state of Georgia passed very onerous, very restrictive abortion uh, law my House Bill 481 that basically says that uh, any we call the bill the heartbeat bill. And basically it says that after six weeks, an abortion is illegal, uh, making it one of the most restrictive, restrictive abortion laws in the country. Now, you, you know, when you talk about or you hear about abortion and not to get into the culture wars, but we talk about this as Roe versus Wade, what the Supreme Court might do, what Congress might do. But we've got individual states that are taking the, the congressional standard, the federal standard, and then making it even more onerous at the local level. And I, I'll be willing to bet you a lot of the things that you care about, the state level is actually t putting a finer point on whatever Congress is or isn't doing at but that the, level. But the swamp is functioning in similar ways at the federal and state levels, right? So folks with really big wallets, folks who have a lot to lose. Sure. Sure, there could be good lobbying uh, for good causes, but... For the most part, the big wallets, big pharmaceutical companies, big tobacco, uh, big tech, these groups, they want to get inside at the state, federal level and state level to promote their interest, their view of things, how things should work. And, and, and let me just throw out a quote. Eric Schmidt, he was the uh, CEO and chairman of Google who I believe is one of the most underappreciated masterminds in Silicon Valley in terms of showing people how to do big tech lobbying at scale, making long-term bets. He said that lobbyists write our laws. 
That's true. Do you have a problem with that? As a citizen, absolutely. But you, have a, you do have a problem. Absolutely, with that. the game needs to change. But let me let me <laughs> let me explain a little bit about why that's even possible. Okay. So again, we're in Florida. Florida is a part-time legislature. I think you guys have 160 members. It's very similar to Georgia. We've got 236 part-time legislature. We make all of our laws in the first quarter of the year. Citizen lawmakers, you know, doctors, lawyers, teachers, farmers. You name it, pharmacists, they come down to the state capitol in the city of Atlanta. And from January until late March or early April, they basically look at two to 3,000 pieces of legislation with no real backing uh, professionally in a lot of the arenas that they're making decisions on. This is true. I, you know, I'm from Michigan, which is a little bit different. There, there are 10 state legislatures in the entire country that are full-time. Right. So we've got people making decisions about billion dollar budgets. Our budget in Georgia is nearly 30 billion dollars. And we've got, as I mentioned, teachers and doctors and dog catchers and dentists making decisions about the kind of things that you care about. That to say a part a part time state legislature makes lawmakers dependent on subject matter experts. Right. So when you get a net neutrality bill, when you get a bill on certificate of need uh, in rural parts of our community and it comes before committee and you're, you know, a lawyer and you're smart, but you're not a subject matter expert. You've got to go to someone who says, I understand what this means. I understand the implications. I can share with you what a decision in one direction or the other would actually mean. The same thing is true virtually across this country. So part of the reason it's possible, and and I don't think it's true at the congressional level. Congressional members make enough money to only do this, right? They have ample staff. They've got ample resources. But at the state level, these folks are citizen lawmakers. Oftentimes, they're in over their heads. They're just not in a position to make a decision in three months on 3,000 pieces of legislation without any real backing, without any legislative support. So I just I, I want to make that distinction because it's only possible in part because of the way our government is set up. You mentioned to me that in so many words, you thought that, hey, maybe there's room for a more balanced view in terms of on the go show. Or you go to my Twitter account or you go to moguldom.com. I talk a lot about the swamp, about lobbyists diluting the equity, specifically of the black voter, where uh, money, special interests uh, swamps up the will of the people, the protections of the people. And there's conflict. Why do you think? that the swamp has not come up as like a top five issue in black America. That's a great where, question. Where like, <laughs> hey, because we don't have an APAC, which is the, the, the lobbying organization for Jewish Americans, uh, we don't have a wallet like Google, Amazon, or Big Tobacco, our community. So only thing we got is our vote. Right. And we have these political leaders, but the wallets are so big and the power is so big. Black people possibly have the most to lose from swamp activity. So I have so many things to say to that. One, APAC has been successful and I've studied it as well. I think. Are you connected to APAC? Not connected to it, but have been to Israel. Have you been a member? Never been a member, no. Did APAC sponsor your trip to Israel? No, well, 
an organization that is a that's affiliated with APAC. I assume that, that's yeah. the thing is yeah. when I just for the audience when I say APAC, and this is where I part ways with people like Bakari Sellers, who you probably know, where they'll say that hey, APAC is only an organization and it doesn't do this stuff. But APAC has affiliates. APAC has members. So when I talk about APAC, I'm talking, talking about, about the, the umbrella. I'm yeah. talking about the big umbrella, the affiliates, the members. That is a big, powerful so force. Let me, but go ahead. Go ahead. So I, I'll separate. I, Bakari and I went to Israel together. So I'll, You guys were sponsored by APAC. Well, it's another organization, an educational organization. Okay. But yes, Affiliate I get your with point. APAC. Absolutely. Um, and it was a, truly an educational trip. We were not lobbied to take a position. You know, Bakari's in a little bit different situation to me because he's been an elected member of his general assembly. He's run for higher office. I have no designs on holding elected office. But what I will say about organizations like APAC is that when you look at them, I think there's, there's an appreciation that someone like me as an operator has to, has to profess because they've been single-minded in their one goal, which is the safety and security of Israel, right? I, I think the difficulty when black America says, we want reinforcements, we want you know legislative backup, we want folks out there advocating for us, is that we've got so many different voices speaking about so many different issues that it's hard to get everybody on a single page. But let, let's, not, let's make no mistake, we have plenty of organizations that have stood in the gap and advocated for black America over the last 50, 60, 70 years. Now, whether or not they have advocated for a singular item on the black agenda is certainly a question. And I, I, I just think it's important to note money is very important in congressional politics and presidential politics. Absolutely. But what's more important for the people who are serving in these roles are votes. And I think the difficulty, again, is that a lobbying organization says, let's take all the points of contact we have and let's apply them at a single point so that we can be heard and felt. Let's continue on uh, APAC. So APAC, they, a lot of people don't know this, but they recruit at HBCUs. They're looking for future political stars like Bakari Sellers. They have a particular profile and they send the black college student to Israel. And many people believe that they are giving that black college student a point of view that's pro-Israel, that's Zionist in scope, okay? And so in reading some of the interviews with the black uh, students who have been sponsored to go to Israel, they say, man, I got to meet Netanyahu, and I got they hooked me up with this, and they hooked me up with that. Now, if the APAC group, has a hundred million dollar budget but other groups the palestinians they don't have a budget right the some of the black groups the radical groups or nationalists or or or, or, or pro-africa groups they don't have a budget sure. apac does have a budget right and so if they're going to be well organized and have a big wallet on hbcu campuses wouldn't that leave uh, lead to a imbalanced point of view for black people in America as it relates to issues in the Middle East. And, and that's where we get into the swamp where people, particularly uh, disenfranchised groups or poorer groups, that there, there's, if, 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 if the Jews in America, Jewish Americans, uh, if they have 
uh, a much bigger wallet on average net net than black America. They have the luxury where we don't necessarily have to focus on domestic issues. You know, we're good in terms of relatively speaking. So because we're good on, on the domestic front, we're going to focus a lot of the attention and, our, the and our resources front. on the international. So let part. me let me just Go say you're you're telling me things that I don't know to be true. So I I didn't I never heard and I wasn't recruited. I wasn't invited on a trip to Israel from come Morehouse on man College. you know you ate packet. No 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 seriously. So I went to I went to Israel in 2011 yeah. and we actually I would say got a diversity of views from Palestinians and Israelites on the ground. It was not some you know but again you've got your own experience and i think i'm sure it's informed by other people who've been there i let me just say this but you i mean if apac sends you and bakari over there you're not going to say that that's they gave you an even point of view about that situation again we're adults right we we have plenty of time to go out forge our own relationships i had friends Friends of mine who have nothing to do with APAC, who are already in Jerusalem, who I got to hook up with and hang out with while I was there. So it wasn't as if, you know, Bakari, who had served in the legislature, me, who had been a lobbyist and who had been, you know, operating in politics, was completely out there being force fed whatever was given to me. And I think that's that, that same perspective is, is tough for me to swallow when I think about my experience at Morehouse College. You could send me anywhere. And I've been to a bunch of different places. I've been on State Department trips at the behest of Hillary Clinton, right? But but her politics at that for, at that point in my career and in my life couldn't be foisted upon me in such a way that I just I was unable to grasp anything else. If you're at Morehouse College or FAMU or Howard University or Spelman, et cetera, you've already you're already developing a worldview, right? You're not you're, and you're there because you want to develop a worldview. I don't think you could just take a six day junket and then say I've been brainwashed and my entire perspective is different. But I will I will acknowledge something you're saying. I hadn't really given serious consideration to the other part of the world until I visited it, right? Like it wasn't, yeah. I wasn't, so to the points you made about, again, the black American agenda, that's what I was focused on. I'm like, hey, let's worry about domestic issues that we can address. And by the way, we got a trillion dollars in collective spending, right? So if, if you say that we don't have a budget, I just say maybe we, we haven't prioritized engaging at the government level. Right, but we have plenty of organizations that collect millions of dollars every year, put on big confabs. I, I, I would, go to I, the black, I go to Black Caucus every year. I go to the National Caucus of State Black Legislators. I think what's missing is a more pronounced and articulated black agenda that people like me can glom onto and support. Now, I, I don't want to. It's not a juxtaposition. So, so you make a good point. However, this is where I deviate from the black consensus: is that groups like APAC and the lobbyists and the design of the monopoly board, the swamp that I, I would call the swamp, your black agenda has to navigate the monopoly board, the swamp in terms of the lobbyists. Uh, Eric Schmidt, of course, uh, he's out saying that, hey, the lobbyists that we pay, they write the laws and they're highly influential in the law. So the design of the monopoly board and the swamp the black agenda has to go through you're those pipes. You're, you're hold, right. Hold on. So, 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 so if APAC has an inordinate amount of control over the black politicians, you could see very healthy legislation that's in our people's interest being diluted, being weighed down. And so APAC, 
uh, other uh, special interest groups, lobbyists, that that black agenda needs to go through a pipe, right? It needs to go across and around the monopoly board. So what the lobbyists and APAC and all these people are doing, you're going to have to confront that. And I believe uh, my thesis would be that if you confront the swamp and how the system is gamed and rigged and diluted by lobbyists and special interest groups, that the black agenda is going to move faster. We have to organize. We have to put it together. We have to move it. But that thing is going to move faster if you confront this big beast in the swamp. I'm going to say two things to that. One, all the money, all the lobbyists, all the campaign contributions or the television commercials don't amount to one thing that is the trump card excuse pardon my french which is the vote right every elected member of a congress or a state legislature or a city hall or any other jurisdiction they have one goal first and foremost and that is to return to office when the voters make a decision and so to the extent that all these other things are in the way and i acknowledge them i think you still i think where where the black American agenda can rise above all these other things that are happening is to say, here's who we're going to back for president, right? And if that person's got to have some degree of ideological purity or some degree of uh, priority for the issues that we think are most important, right? And uh, all the money in the world is not going to save a politician or a lobbying organization that isn't in line with a group of people who say we are voting for our future. Right, but I'm going to I'm going to say one other thing about APAC that you mentioned when APAC uh, and, and again, the ancillary organizations approached me. It was about the way it was couched was reconnecting the historic alliance between between blacks and Jews that was forged through the civil rights movement. I would you would surprise me if you could tell me one piece of legislation in APAC or any of the affiliates have advocated for that has been anti the black agenda. The 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 entirety the entirety of my knowledge as it relates to congressional politics, has been safety and security for the state of Israel. It's been uh, reallocating funding. That's what funding. you're advocating for. No, no. I, for, I'm, oh, you're not saying that. I'm, I'm okay. just telling you that as someone who's who's learned in this space, who has some relationships in this space, I haven't. If you told me that you know the Fang companies or other organizations took policies as a, you know related to as related to uh, privacy, et cetera, that were anti or against the black agenda i could accept we could debate that i i've yet to see apac get behind a piece of legislation in america which is what i'm concerned about that would be antithetical to what i believe a black agenda should include okay so let's 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 go there uh you've opened up a lot of can of worms <laughs> I, I i was i was trying to protect you and not uh, uh go too far into uh apac but let's talk about sure. this apac and its affiliates they banged against Barack Obama when all Barack Obama wanted to do is establish peace with Iran. Okay, so Barack Obama said, hey, there's all these forces outside of the United States that's pushing the United States and those black and brown troops to go to war with Iran. Barack Obama stood up to APAC. It he is. stood up to Netanyahu. And then Congress and, invited him to speak and they, behind his and, back. And they disrespected him. I totally him. agree with that. APAC put money down to stop Barack Obama in trying to get a peace deal with Iran. So, 
So Netanyahu, who is, let's call it an APAC affiliate. Who's up affiliate. for re-election today. Yeah, who's an APAC affiliate. He disrespected Obama. The Congressional Black Caucus didn't like the disrespect that Netanyahu was showing Obama. Many believe that I talked to in South Florida, our brother Andrew Gilliam, who I supported, he lost by around 50,000 votes or 52,000 votes. There was a report in Politico that I read that said Gilliam underperformed in Jewish districts in Florida. In DeSantis, MAGA, and you have some fanatical APAC members where, hey, if you don't ride with us, we'll blow this whole thing up. We're vote Republican. Look, Negro, <laughs> if you don't get in line into with this one focus on Israel, we will not vote Democrat. We will vote Republican. Okay? So some believe, we don't know for sure, that the APAC voter stopped Gilliam because of fears he was not hardline pro-Israel. So, you, so, 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 so I gave you two examples. Neither of which has anything to do with APAC as an organization or domestic policy. Let's imagine... You, you, let, you, don't, you don't think that a lot of these Florida uh, voters are... Members, of I think APAC? any affiliation could be spun as anything. I, I just, it's, it's. I, I don't, I don't want to make. We've got a Morehouse brother, who ran for president, is now up for 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 federal board chairman, uh, uh, chair or uh, a board seat. I, I, I'm not going to go on television or on a podcast or on radio and defend him because we happen to have the same alma mater. He has the ability and the right to advocate for whatever he wants, and I, I think that what we've got to keep in mind here is that the ability to advocate is enshrined in the constitution the first amendment so i think we got to figure out how to play the game not to say that the game is rigged and we won't play absolutely not so if you're telling me that cory booker who's a apac favorite right and bakari sellers who's on the national board of apac that when our politicians come up. They feel a need because they can't get money in other places. They can't get support in other places. They're desperate, right? And so APAC... But can, what, hold, but, on, hold on, let me finish. I don't know if I can agree with the premise of the okay, question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you can disagree. But what I'm saying is that APAC will connect with Kamala Harris. It will connect with Cory Booker. It will sponsor Bakari Sellers. And these people have in their mind the game has always worked like this you sure. got to go kiss the ring to apac that's how the game has worked we didn't set the game up but we got to play it other people are playing it we got to play the game and i'm telling you that that game is going out the door and you see the democratic party moving to the left where that you got to kiss the ring to apac you got to follow apac you got to vote apac i agree you with you there the money that stuff is going out the door. There are 14,000 registered lobbyists in Washington, D.C. APAC is not even the biggest spender of them, right? The, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is the it biggest spender. It can't be measured by money. Uh, absolutely. It can't be measured well, by you, money. You can't have Just it both money. ways. You can't say that these guys have to go play the game and go get the money, but then don't count the money when, we, when you bring no, the no, facts the, in. No, the money's a factor, but 
Apex. Let, let me make a different okay. point. My, my point isn't that anything you said is wrong. I don't know it to be true, but I don't believe it's wrong, right? I don't know Cory Booker. I can't speak for who's backed him, et cetera. I, I don't believe that when he ran for Newark City Council and then for mayor, he was on folks' radar, and, and that's how he won those elections, right? I, I, I have friends who were in those spaces, and I think there were plenty of other stakeholders that powered his electoral success. Maybe when you get to the point where you're at U.S. Senate, then, then you're on everybody's radar. I don't know. But I will say this. The, I think you made a, ve- a really important point, which is that black leaders need resources. Every campaign is driven by three resources, people, time, and money. That's all you got in any campaign from dog catcher to president. The, the challenge that I think you're underscoring, and rightly so, is that when you've got a community that wants to support a leader, but they've got a deficit of any of those things, then other organizations come in and fill that void, right? You're saying black folks should be able to say, Cory Booker, we're going to tell you whether or not you can be president and it's going to be up to us. We're going to provide you with the manpower or the dollars or the connectivity or the worldview that should shape the decisions you make in the White House should you succeed. But if we can't, but if we, if we, if we fall short on one or two or three of those things, then you're saying someone else swoops in. And my point is to say, well, let's not fall short on those things. Because there's always going to be someone to swoop in. This is part one. Tune in to the next episode for part two. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Go. You could check me out at Jamarla Martin on Twitter and also come check us out at moguldom.com. That's M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com. Be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter. You can get the latest information on crypto, tech, economic empowerment, and politics. Let's go.